You're listening to the free preview episode of On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. To hear the entire episode, go to patreon.com forward slash Karen Geyer, K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R, and sign up. It's only $5 for the entire series. This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Season 2, Episode 15, Juana Castanera on SGI. Last year, Juana Castanera joined us to talk about her experiences both in and outside of Soka Kakai International, also known as SGI. After the airing of the episode, Juana asked to come on and clarify a few points and to go a little bit deeper into her feelings about her experiences. I was happy to facilitate this request. So what you're going to hear is a section of an interview where Juana covers off a number of different topics, and it's in a different format from our traditional interview style because of the nature of the way that she wanted to discuss her own experiences. Juana, thank you so much for coming back to the show. Talk to me about how you have processed your experiences at SGI since you've been out and what has helped you process those feelings. Um, so I, I am uh, an energy medicine practitioner. And I did not realize until maybe three months ago how this whole issue, this whole, the whole shame issue around the cult experience and the fact that I was, that I had, that I was living in denial, that I kind of had processed it, but that I really wasn't open about it, that I hadn't really acknowledged it. And that, I guess that, denial had really uh, crippled my practice as a practitioner. And what I've decided, I'm working with a, with a coach, her name is Beth Martins. And Beth Martins is the person that introduced me to your podcast. And she, you know, three months ago, she told me that I could really use, you know, my experience in a cult to help other people in my practice. And at the time, I, I thought, she's crazy. I, I, you know, I'm not doing that. But then I started um, digging in, right? I listened to a couple of your podcasts, and then I started just doing Google searches for cults. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, my gosh, there's a whole world out there of cults. I had no idea. I thought, I thought Sunya Moon... You know, the Buddhist organization, you know, SGI and maybe a couple of others, you know, the Hare Krishnas. And I had no idea that it's it's like every oh, my God, it's insane. And now I'm thinking, wow, it's probably like seven in 10 people have been in a cult. Something that not everybody might be familiar with is that one of the biggest revelations to people as they begin questioning their involvement in groups like cults is the realization that they are in fact in a cult because many people don't think or realize that fact until it's too late. 
What was that like for you? I found it very difficult to accept that I was in a cult. And the reason is I thought cults were places where there was sexual abuse, there was verbal, emotional abuse, where you would give up your freedom and have to live in a compound or a commune, uh, where it was like in your face and very obvious the the amount of control and having to live a regimented life. So that was my idea. Like Moon, I remember spending a vacation, uh, or I spent some time in um, Gloucester, Massachusetts, and the Sung Young Moon people had a huge compound. And that's what I equated to a cult. So when I joined in the early 80s, we called it NSA. It was Nitrin Shoshu of America. And then later on, they changed their name to Sokogaka International, SGI. So when I joined at the time, there was no sexual abuse. There was no live in a commune and and you have chores. There was, you, you get a job. And you work and you have a family and you have children. There wasn't anything uh, involving having to leave your family or your parents or. So I didn't see any of that. And so I thought this isn't a cult. You know, I can have a regular life and I can go out and I can have a glass of wine and I can date and have sex. Because at the time I was 23 and I can go to concerts and everything's fine. And and so this isn't a cult and it's based on Mahayana Buddhism. So it, it it's a very benign organization when you look at it from the outside. It There's no, most people would not equate that with a cult because what we see is Nexium and whatever, Rainier. And that's what we think of in a cult, but uh, now talking to you and realizing my experience because I was so malleable and so easily influenced was the amount of control that little by little was taking hold of my life. So, but it was very subtle. Um, So I'll tell you a little bit. uh, I grew up in South America and Brazil, and my dad was an American and my mom was Colombian. My dad was a very controlling man, and I was the youngest one. And it seemed like uh, he did everything to control me as possible. Now, he, he wasn't evil. Uh, I think he just had a lot of fears. And he knew a little bit about the white slave trade, you know, and... Uh, whatever the sex trade, he knew a little, he knew about that even in the sixties and seventies. I don't, don't tell me how, but so when I, when I got to San Francisco and I was introduced to this organization, my dad was like always on my case about you have to do this and you have to do that. And, and I think I joined the organization because it gave me, um, it gave me tools that I thought I'm going to finally be in control of my life and I'm going to be able to get my dad off my back. I know what to do. I'm going to chant. I'm going to go to meetings. I'm going to attain enlightenment. 
and everything's going to be fine and my life is going to be perfect. And that's that's how I fell into it, I think. And also because my brother introduced me to the practice, I trusted my brother implicitly and I thought he would never do anything to, to hurt me. So that's how it all started. Um, so as I started to advance from a regular member then to a group leader and a district leader, I was be being taken care of by older members, usually Japanese women, who had many years of experience in the practice. And then soon I was introduced to the concept of getting guidance. So if you had a major problem or suffering, you would make an appointment with someone you trusted who would give you guidance on how to resolve it. Now, it was guidance in faith. So as a young woman, I was far from my mother who lived in Brazil, uh, and I definitely didn't want my dad's advice. Uh, this made sense. It was easy. I'm going to, if I have an issue, I'll go get guidance. What I saw around me, though, after some time is that the young women, because I was in the young women's division, was that they constantly needed to get guidance. And they would brag that they got guidance from this special leader and then they would share what their guidance was. And I used to find that really kind of interesting. So I'm a lot more private. I really hated people telling me what to do because I had my dad for that. So I would get guidance, you know, last resort. And so then when, when we would talk to people about Nichiren Daishonin's Buddhism, we would say that, you know, practicing this Buddhism, that it's not a crutch. Because a lot of people in those days used to say like, oh, religion is a crutch. And and uh, so we would say, no, it takes a lot of courage to face your fears and your demons and to chant. Now what I realize is that the fact that you might face your fears, but you actually never resolve them. You're led to believe that after many years of chanting and doing activities, you will overcome your fears and your karma. Well, I can tell you from where I stand today that you don't ever actually resolve anything. You mask your fears and, uh, you know, your anxiety. You mask it with the illusion that you're gaining wisdom and understanding and addressing your fears. So now in hindsight, I see that the function of guidance is to take people's power away from having, by having them seek guidance with leaders, uh, which leaders often took as an opportunity to tell you what to do. So the philosophy teaches you that we all have a Buddha nature and we all have this innate wisdom. But on the other hand, they tell you that you have to go get guidance, which then makes people dependent on their leader or on uh, what they call sensei, you know, this gentleman, Daisaku Ikeda. And there was even in the 90s, people would say, I guess um, they would say, oh, what would President Ikeda do? Like if you were, if he was in this situation, what would he do uh, to get people to, um, I, I don't know, I guess get guidance. So this whole guidance thing was just, uh, it was never ending. And I would get guidance occasionally. I had some really strange experiences. I remember once getting guidance and being told that I was really emotion that I was a very emotional person. And at the time I took it as a criticism. I didn't really understand it. And I thought it I thought it was a bad thing. Uh, but in reality, 
I'd rather have emotions and be alive than, you know, be deadened or that have no, no feelings. So I think after that guidance, cause I, that was, that was, I don't know, maybe three years in my practice, I tried really hard like to control my emotions. So around the time that I was starting to feel that something was wrong with my life, I had an interesting experience. I had been married for about five years and had suddenly found a bottle of vodka in my husband's backpack. I was shocked and stunned. How could this have happened to me? Both my grandfathers had been alcoholics and I had one aunt and two uncles who were alcoholics. I didn't do drugs or drink. I smoked cigarettes and drank a lot of coffee, but that was pretty much it. So I was really, really shocked. And by that time, my mother had already passed away. So I decided to get guidance to understand how I could handle this very delicate situation. So I spilled my guts and the the advice was, don't worry about it. And I remember sitting in my living room with this woman and she's like, don't worry about it. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, don't worry about it. So the the meeting ended, she left my house. And at that point, I decided that that was the last time I was going to get guidance, that I was done. I just, just could not understand. There was no empathy. There was no compassion. There was no concern. There was just, don't worry about it. And then years later, probably like eight or nine years later, I found out that her husband was an alcoholic. And that's how she had chosen to deal with it. And the reason I found out was um, he became very, very ill. I think uh, he became a diabetic, obviously, because of all the sugar in the alcohol. And, you know, all of a sudden, I guess one of the things he had to do was just quit drinking. And when I found out, like, his health struggles and what he was going through, and he looked awful because I used to see him at meetings, that's when I started putting two and two together. I'm like, oh, my gosh, he was an alcoholic. And her way of dealing with it was just being in denial. That was like, I'm done. I'm going to figure things out on my own. I don't need to get guidance. Okay. So the regrets I have from spending, okay, so the regrets I have from spending so much time, and just to give you an idea of all the time. So in the 80s and early 90s, within the organization, there were constant campaigns. Uh, shakabuku is the word that is used for proselytizing or bringing in new members. So we, we were always like district to district, uh, competing as to who would get more newer members. Uh, we had study campaigns, we had study exams, then we would get a. To unlock the rest of this episode, visit patreon.com forward slash K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R. It's only $5 to unlock over 20 hours of content.